We'll be in Exodus chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 13 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. In 1971, American musician Neil Diamond was reflecting on on his time recently spent in therapy as he was struggling to make sense of a personal crisis he was going through. He was no longer sure of of who he even was, of what his purpose was, where he belonged in the world, and he was on the verge of a total breakdown. And in that process, as he was thinking about it, he wrote these lyrics that resulted in a Grammy for him. I am, I said, to no one there. And no one heard at all, not even the chair. I am, I cried. I am, said I. And I am lost, and I can't even say why. Neil Diamond was expressing what is the natural result of an existential philosophy. This, this idea that it's up to us to figure out our purpose in life, up to us to figure out our meaning, up to us to figure out who we even are to begin with. And if that's up to us, we're going to find out that we're just speaking to an empty room. The chair is not even going to listen to us. We have nothing more to build on than the conclusion that Neil Diamond himself reached, which is, I am. I don't have any more answers than that. I can't tell you why I exist, what I exist for, what my purpose is, what my role in all this is, where I belong. It is an empty, a distressing, and a depressing conclusion if it's all up to us to know and understand these things. That's one path of I am. Now contrast that with what Moses hears, not from the chair in the empty room, but from the burning bush. Being called to deliver God's people, 
Moses is insecure and uncertain. Is it up to me? Do I, what do I have to do here? How can I make sense of this? He's lacking the same confidence that Neil Diamond lacked, but his confidence in the end does not come from him going through therapy or, or figuring it out on his own by talking to an empty chair. His confidence comes from God speaking into the emptiness. Verses 13 and 14, Moses asked God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What am I going to say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now that I am, for my grammar nerds, that's first person singular, I am. If we switch that to Third person singular, it is, he is, which in the Hebrew language becomes Yahweh. Yahweh, which then the Lord says, that's my name, the name that I'm going to be remembered by throughout generations. Now, one commentator that I read on this said that rivers of ink have been spilled trying to figure out what the Lord meant when he said, I am who I am, I am sent this, he is, I will be who I will be. We're not going to get into the rivers of ink. We're just simply going to say that if if God had put anything after I am, if he had narrowed it down anymore, he would be limiting who he is. And when you see in Scripture, your, your most translations of the Bible, if you look at what it has written there, when it says Lord with all capital letters, that's translating the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's an actual name. It's to distinguish from Lord, that's capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d, which would be a translation of Adonai or some other Hebrew word for an authority or a deity. But when you see Lord, all capital letters, that is the name Yahweh by which he reveals himself. A child of God, not only your salvation, but also your present comfort, your future hopes, your purpose, your identity, your place in all of this, your assurance that anything makes sense or has meaning, it all comes down to the question of who is I am? Who is this God? What has he revealed himself to be? And in this encounter with Moses in these verses, we're going to see three things about the I am that give us hope. One is that the I am keeps promises from the past. That's one thing we can know about him and that we can be certain of. He keeps promises from the past. Verse 15, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It seems from looking at Scripture that the people of Israel, they at least knew about their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They perhaps knew some of the stories. They didn't have the book of Genesis, though. Moses ended up being the one who would write that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what we do see is that they did not worship the God of their fathers. We see that later when they're entering the promised land, that famous passage where Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. What comes after that, the part that usually ends up being a dot, dot, dot on the cross-stitch versions or the plaques that we do, the part that we leave out is, is Joshua says, choose this day whom you serve, either the gods that your fathers served in Egypt or the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. You have a choice to make. Which one are you going to serve? Telling us that the people of Israel had forgotten their God and no longer worshiped Yahweh while they were in Egypt. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just important because they were historical figures though. They were important to the people of Israel in that day in Egypt because God had made a covenant with them. Yahweh had made a covenant with them. A covenant is a promise that He would keep. A promise that He would keep by saving the people of Israel. In more places than we would have time to look at this morning in Genesis, we see how God has made this covenant, repeating it over and over, first to Abraham several times, and then reiterating it to Isaac, and then once again to Jacob, making it clear that these promises are going to be kept through that that lineage, that that group of people, the, the children of Jacob, of Israel. And those promises included such things as that he was going to give the land of Canaan, now occupied by all these other peoples. He was going to give it to them. It was going to be theirs A promise to be their God, to be with them. A promise to bless them, to through them bless others, to make them a giant nation that through them kings would arise. And in verses 16 and 17, we see that God intends to keep those promises. He tells Moses to gather the elders of Israel and tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, He has appeared saying, I've observed you and what's been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. This is not a new promise. He's repeating what he already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will bring you up out of the affliction and into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. These were hard promises to believe if you are in bondage in Egypt as a slave. Hard to believe when God made them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God repeated them again and again. And now the time has come, he says, when he will fulfill the promises he made in the past. Now I say all that not just because it's it's an interesting historical or theological point. This actually matters for you for two reasons. One, by faith in Christ, all who have faith in Christ are made children of Abraham. And therefore an inheritor, an heir of that promise, of that covenant. There's not the children of Abraham and, and, and now the church. Those who have faith in Christ are the children of Abraham. Those who grew up singing, Father Abraham had many sons. You know this one? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. That's theology that we're teaching to the youngest children when we sing that song. And we're basing it on promises like we see in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith, he's speaking of those who have faith in Christ, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So these these promises of God that he's going to keep are not just for Israel and Egypt. They apply also to you that he will make His people, a great nation that through them all nations on earth will be blessed. These are true promises of which you are an heir. But more significantly, why it matters to you is that God did not just make promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He went on and made more. He promised a new covenant even through Jesus Christ. And it is to you that those promises are fulfilled. In Christ, He has promised forgiveness of sins. He has promised strength for obedient living. He has promised power to overcome temptation. He has promised an end to injustice, fulfilled desires, eternal life in heaven, an end of our sorrows. Great, great promises. And as we often remind you from this pulpit, in the words of 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God 
find their yes in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Here's what's, what's truly amazing to me about these promises as I've been looking at Exodus so far. The way that I am, the way that Yahweh keeps the promises of the past. Have you ever made a promise to someone that maybe you didn't want to make, but you made it anyway because it was the right thing to do? Like you promised a friend you're going to help them move or paint their garage or do something like that. And then they forgot about it. And as the, the time approached to come true on your promise, they're not saying anything. They seem to have forgotten. And you're like, wow, I get points for making the promise, but then I don't have to do anything about it. Like, yes. Okay, that's not what, what's happening here. Because interestingly, the Israelites are crying out for help. But what they're not doing, what they're not doing is calling upon God to keep his promises. There's no mention of the Israelites. Moses isn't saying, well, it's about time, God. You promised you were going to help us, and it's about time you finally did. No, nowhere do we see the Israelites waiting on God or calling upon God to do what he promised to do. The people of Israel in slavery had forgotten their God, to say nothing of forgetting his promises, and yet he keeps them anyway. They forgot what he had promised, but God did not forget. The child of God the encouraging word there is that you can count on God to keep his promises, not because you know them, remember them, claim them, not because God is forced or obligated to follow through. No, you can count on the amazing promises of God because he keeps them. That's who he is. That's what he does. The I am keeps the promises from the past. Even if we do not remember God's promises to us, God does not forget. And so our hope is not in what we ask God for. Our hope is in what God has committed to do. Because come what may, He will fulfill. He will do it. And it, it's a good thing because even the promises we remember, even the things that we will dare ask God for cannot compare to what He intends and has committed to do. As we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So yes, learn the promises of God. I encourage you often to do that. That you may better know what you can expect of him, what he has promised to do in you and through you and for you. In your prayers, recall and remember and speak the promises of God so that you can pray with confidence knowing that you are praying in his will and in his name. Act on the promises of God so that you can be strong in obedience. But none of this is because of you, dear child of God. None of this finds its source in your boldness or in your memory or in your strength or in your wisdom. And thank God that it does not. He keeps his promises to the forgotten and the forgetful, to the undeserving and the unwanted, and to those whose minds aren't even aware or able to understand the grace that he gives. Not because he's forced to do it, but because he is so abundantly gracious. That is who the I am is. He keeps the promises from the past. The next thing that God shows and reveals to Moses about himself is that I am shows power in the present He's not just a God of the quaint and nostalgic past. Look at the good things that he did back then. He is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. 
The reason that we recall the stories of his mighty deeds, the reason that we read Exodus and Daniel and Mark and Esther is to learn the mighty deeds of God because he has not changed. He still acts mightily even today. And so God is telling Moses here, it wasn't just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your fathers, who who saw my mighty works. It is you as well. You will see them for yourself. In verses 18 and 19, he says, you and the elders go to the king of Egypt, say that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to to Yahweh, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That's what's going to take. The Lord is going to have to show His power. But one thing I want to notice here is that God anticipates trouble. And not in the way that I do. Okay, I anticipate trouble all the time. It, it, it drives my wife nuts especially. Because every good and wonderful and fun idea she has, I'm the party pooper. I'm the one to poke the holes to find that, you know, this, this might not work. They might, they might say no to that or, or it might rain that day. Or I, you know, I'm a pessimist, which is what you call a realist who has grown older. Uh, and, and, and for people who like have these great ideas and expectations and plans, that's frustrating. And that's not what God's doing. He's not saying, Moses, call the elders, go to Pharaoh. But you know what? He's probably going to say No. Now, that's not what's happening. And it's important that we see that, that the Lord knows what's going to happen. He's not fearing what might happen. He knows how the story is going to play out. And in Isaiah 46, he says it this way, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times declaring things not yet done. God's not sitting around waiting to see how history plays out. From the beginning, he has declared how the end is going to be. He knows that Pharaoh is going to oppose. And whenever God's people face difficulty, whatever difficulty God's people face, they can be assured that it does not surprise God. He sees it coming and he is powerful and able to overcome it. So that passage in Isaiah 46 goes on. God says, I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times I declare things not yet done, saying, he's not just seeing what happens, he says, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God knows how the story will play out, and he tells Moses this so that Moses and the Israelites will know that when Pharaoh refuses them, they don't need to wring their hands, oh no, God told us to ask to go, and Moses said no, uh, Pharaoh said no, what are we going to do? No, he says it's not time to panic. You need to know that things are going exactly how I planned for them to go. So also for us, during that delicate and difficult in-between time, before God's power sets all things right, and evil seems to still be in control, His people need to know that this is God's plan all along. This is is how it was going to happen. From the beginning, God is not caught unawares. It's exactly what He anticipated and planned for and is working out. So in verse 20, He says, I will stretch out my hand. I'm going to strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And then after that, then he's going to let you go. 
Now you know how it's going to be. Now you know the plan. But why? Why do it that way? We talked about this at the men's Bible study this past Monday night as we talked about God's providence and how evil and God's plan kind of coexist in a very mysterious and confusing way. And we debated this question of, of why couldn't God just snap his fingers and make things the way he wanted them to be? Does he not have the power to do that? I mean, absolutely, yes, he does. Why bother with this whole rigmarole? Rig, rig, rigmarole? <laughs> It's a funny word. This whole deal of Pharaoh saying no, and then I'm going to show my power and let him. Why bother? Well, one of the reasons, I mean, he expresses it to Pharaoh later on in Exodus chapter 9. He says, Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up. This is why I put you in power, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed over all the earth. One, one of the reasons not every time, but one of the reasons that God allows evil and difficulty and trouble in the world is for God to show that His power is greater than any other. That through His victory, He's glorified and exalted. So that when God's people see that Pharaoh is letting them go, they're not, just, they're not left to wonder, oh, was Pharaoh just in a good mood today? No, the Lord was victorious over evil. When God's people are rejoicing with Him in eternity and all evil is done away with, there's no doubt, there's no question that this came about not by fortuitous circumstances, not by coincidence or luck, but by the power of God that made things that way when He triumphed over sin and evil. He is exalted over the power of sin in our lives when we finally turn away from it. Instead of just making it go away, he allows us to struggle and ultimately see the beauty of God and turn from sin. He is exalted over the enemies of the gospel when they rage and oppose and fight and yet His church and His kingdom continue through the ages. He's exalted over human institutions and powers when they promote themselves and exalt themselves and then fade away and are consigned to history and the Lord remains. God shows His power in the present. So in seeing God's power at work in Egypt, the Israelites would have learned, should have learned, they didn't, as we'll see, but they should have learned the valuable lesson that God could be trusted in all circumstances. And to those who are saved in Christ, we likewise have a powerful demonstration of God's might that should also likewise give us assurance. Because ultimately in Jesus, we see God showing his power in the present over the greatest threat, the greatest threat of all. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read it this way. Then comes the end when, God, when Christ delivers the kingdom of God the Father, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. For Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because in Jesus we see that God has defeated our greatest threat. We can be at peace knowing that His power will never be defeated. You know, in video games, usually you've got to play through the lower levels and you've got to play, you know, fighting these little minions and these minor things. And then you get to the boss, the big boss. And that's where you lose. That's, you know, you can't defeat the big boss. He's the hardest one to defeat. And then finally, after much fighting, Jesus has done it the other way around. He has taken the big boss, death, and defeated him now. And everything else is just a run-through of the game. 
And I know that speaks to like three of us in the room. But to those of us that it speaks to, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, the big boss has already been defeated. God has shown his power in the present. What does that mean for us now? That our enemy is defeated. We can be at peace knowing that there's nothing else that can stand against him. The big boss is already down. Everything else is just small change. But people of God, we are still at that in-between moment, aren't we? That already and not yet time when the power of God has been demonstrated and announced He will do this. He has defeated death. And yet we see the rebellion carried out. We see the power of evil at work opposing and threatening. And yet He told us it would be so. He told Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen, but it's going to work out the way I'm planning. Likewise, Jesus tells us, giving us comfort in telling us that it will be difficult, but He still will win. The challenges, the difficulties, the pain don't mean that God's plan is off track. In fact, it's exactly on track. Jesus assured us in John 16. He said, I've told you about these things in advance so that in Me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Christian. I have overcome the world. That is who the I am is. Not only does he keep the promises from the past, but he shows his power in the present. And the last thing we see in these verses that the I am does is interesting. It's perhaps the most often overlooked part of the Exodus story. That he who keeps promises in the past and shows power in the present also gives provision for the future. Listen to verses 21 and 22. The Lord says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. The Israelites didn't sneak out of Egypt empty handed with nothing but the clothes on their back. And that's the romanticized Hollywood version. They, they walked out carrying gold necklaces, statues. They walked out enriched. And the word of God that God uses here is beautiful in verse 22. He says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Who plunders? Victorious armies plunder. Not people sneaking out with barely anything to their name. Victorious conquering armies plunder. And that's what they did to Egypt. God had defeated Pharaoh. He had shamed the false gods of Egypt. He had done battle and he was victorious. And like we sang earlier, he says, you will share in my victory. You will be more than conquerors too. His people are plundering Egypt. It's important to see that that wasn't coincidence. That wasn't an idea that the Israelites had. This was God's plan from the beginning. Because God's plan for His people is not just to set them free. His plan for His people even today is to fully bless them. But why? Why does that matter? It matters because when God blesses His people, it shows how good and mighty He is. God is praised when His people are blessed. Years after the Exodus, the people of Israel would sing a psalm at harvest time about how the abundance of the harvest would declare the goodness of God. Psalm 67, here are a few of the verses. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Why? Why should God bless us? 
that your ways may be known in all the earth and your saving power among the nations. God blessed this nation so other nations will see that he blessed his people. Or down to verse 6 of Psalm 67. The earth has yielded its increase. Our crops are abundant. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And what happens when God blesses us? Let all the ends of the earth fear him. When God blesses his people, he is praised. He is shown to be mighty and capable. He is not just a God who slips his people quietly out of bondage. You're forgiven of your sins. Now just kind of hang tight until we get to heaven. He is a God who leads his people in triumphal procession. That's why we sang more than conquerors this morning. It gives that image of God leading us in triumphal procession like described in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. That's an image of a, an, a victorious army marching through a city. Having plundered the enemy, they now lead, are led in triumphal procession and through us, through that triumphal procession, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Child of God, this is his plan for you. Just as Exodus gives us a picture of what salvation looks like, we cannot skimp this one important detail that God doesn't just save his children. He blesses them by providing for their future, giving them all that they need. Even Jesus tells us that he did not just come to save us from hell. That's what he does in dying on the cross for our sins. But that's not the limit of what he came to do. He said in John 10, I came that my sheep, my people might have life and have it abundantly. Not just a little bit of life, not just enough to get by. He wants your life to be blessed and abundant. Now let's notice how he does it briefly in verse 21. He says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God changes the minds. He influences the hearts and desires and opinions of the Egyptians. Do you serve a God who can and does do that? Who changes opinions? Who affects the mind? What an amazing demonstration of His sovereignty. And He does that to provide for His children. He does this because all they have is rightfully the Lord's. Even the gold of Egypt belongs to the Lord. We sang Psalm 24 this morning. Hear how that psalm begins. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to him. He is merely reassigning what is his from one group of people to another in order to bless his children. Let that be of assurance to you, children of God. Listen, everything on earth belongs to the Lord. Everything on earth belongs to the Lord. And He is your loving Heavenly Father. Therefore, His children will never be without anything they need. God is never looking at His children in need of anything and going, oh man, I wish I could do something about that. I have great intentions, but no resources. No. Everything on earth is His, and He is a loving Father. His children will never lack. This is why we pray and quote Philippians 4.19, that my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It is a weak and impoverished gospel 
that stops with the forgiveness of sin and does not remind us that God, I am, Yahweh, provides for the future of His children. In fact, Scripture suggests that God's ability and intention to provide outpaces our ability to ask. Ephesians 3 says, Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we would ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory. My son was watching the original, the original Star Wars this past week. And I was reminded of this when I heard a line, overheard it when I was in the other room, that as Luke Skywalker's trying to convince Han Solo to kind of help the rebellion and, and help Princess Leia, he's like, hey, she's rich. You, can, you, can be, you will be rewarded with riches if you help. And Han Solo says, how much? And Luke Skywalker says, more money than you can imagine. And Han Solo goes, I don't know, kid. I can imagine a lot of money. Now, when Scripture says that God will provide abundantly more than we can ask or even imagine, it's not talking about quantity of riches. It's not Han Solo saying, no, I can imagine a lot. Our, imagine, our imagination falters and stumbles and cannot imagine what good things God actually has in mind for us. When we're thinking of riches or, or, or fame or the approval of others, we are like children demanding bubblegum to satisfy our hunger. Something that the flavor is going to last eight seconds and it's not going to fill our stomach. And meanwhile, God has prepared a banquet for us to feast on. He is able to provide far more abundant than all that we would ask or imagine. God, the I Am, gives provision for the future. All we need and more while we mess around with things that will never satisfy, never truly fulfill, never bring true and lasting joy, he says, I already have a plan to take care of you. Let us ask him to satisfy us in the way that he knows is best. I want to conclude briefly with, with this one thought. As, as we study God's word here on Sunday mornings, there's not a lot of emphasis on, on what you should do. I don't send you away with a list of, okay, because of what we've studied, here's your to-do list from God's Word today. And that's intentional. The what you should do is usually pretty clear. We don't, we don't really struggle understanding what God's Word is telling us to do, right? It's often pretty clear. And even in these verses today, there's like one, maybe two lines where God is actually telling Moses something to do. The struggle is, is doing it. Is, is needing the motivation and the, and the ability to do it. And as we remind you here again and again, it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. It is the gospel that makes us able to do what it is that we ought to do. And so the focus in God's word and in the gospel and in our preaching of the gospel here is not always ever really on what you are to do. Our focus is on who God is and what God has done. Who He is enables you to do what He's called you to do. That's why we are looking at who the I Am is this morning. Because it is pointless, and I'm not exaggerating, it is pointless for me to tell you that the Bible says to love your enemies, to, to serve one another, to give to the poor, to pray for your persecutors, to obey your parents, to preach the gospel. Don't love the things of this world. It is I would be wasting my breath if I said this again and again and again 
if God did not keep His promises from the past, if God did not show His power today in the present, and if God did not give provision for your future. But He does. He does. And so what you do comes from who He is. And so as we close, our prayer, our study, our song is to turn us towards who God is. He is good. He is right. He is powerful. He is loving. Let us praise Him for that as we pray based on those assurances. Join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You as we do every week for Your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom You have defeated sin and death, who has taken our place on the cross, that we might be united to You, through whom You have revealed Your goodness, Your power, Your provision, Your faithfulness, and everything we need for life and godliness. And now by the Holy Spirit that He has given us, we cry out, Abba, Father, would You in Your wisdom give us what we need. Lead us in paths of righteousness for Your name's sake, that we may give glory to You in Christ Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.